Hi everyone, welcome to The Lab Report, a podcast that will show you the inner workings of the clinical lab through discussions, interviews, and stories. Most importantly, you will see what goes on behind the scenes in the clinical lab and how it can impact you. Welcome to this episode of The Lab Report. So this episode is the first of a two-part series of a fellows chat where I, Felix, sat down with Drs. Victoria Higgins and Matthew Nichols when they were training in the clinical biochemistry program at the University of Toronto. So that's about two years ago now. So in this first part um, of the two-part series, we will talk about our different journeys to becoming clinical biochemists, and we'll also discuss work-life balance. In part two, we will discuss imposter syndrome, as well as starting a new job as a clinical biochemist. So looking back at this episode, and actually this two-part episode, we thought that actually we should give a little bit more context in the beginning. Um, So first off, uh, clinical biochemists, uh, our profession really entails overseeing the laboratories in hospitals, Uh, and in community laboratories where you get your blood work done. So when you go get your glucose or cholesterol tested, that would fall under our purview. And we are essentially managing a lot of the scientific and quality aspects of this uh, part of the laboratory. Um, Certainly, if you want to learn more about what our profession is, uh, please refer back to the second episode of our podcast, which was, uh, sorry, what is a clinical biochemist? Um, And another thing is when we mention a clinical biochemistry fellow, we are referring to someone who is currently in a postdoctoral clinical biochemistry training program. So the typical education pathway to becoming a clinical biochemist, it can differ between different individuals and differ across countries, but in Canada, it can take approximately 15 years after high school. So this will typically include a four-year undergraduate degree, a two-year master's degree, a PhD, which can vary between four and six years typically. Some individuals will also go on to have a research postdoc, which can again be between one to three years. And then the Clinical Biochemistry Fellowship is a two-year program um, for most programs in Canada, while the Manitoba program is actually three years. Um, So after this journey, you can then start working as a clinical biochemist, but it is an additional year of certification exams. So in Canada, the certification exams are through the CACB or the Canadian Academy of Clinical Biochemistry. And this will include a written exam about four months after finishing the program, and then an oral examination, which will be about one year after finishing the program. So in Canada, there are six programs throughout the country. Um, These include two in Ontario, two in Alberta, one in Manitoba, and one in Quebec. So we hope this gives you a little bit more context before listening to this two-part series. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to listen to part two. Welcome to this episode of The Lab Report. So we have a bit of a special treat today. Um, We are hoping, uh, Victoria and I, who are your co-hosts, to start a series where we have slightly informal, more casual conversations with current fellows in, um, starting right now, Canadian training programs, um, where we just talk a little bit about our personal journeys and perhaps uh, personal, maybe professional challenges that everybody can relate to. Um, So our special guest today is Dr. Matthew Nichols. 
Um, so I think with that, I'll just have everyone do maybe round table introductions. Uh, maybe I'll let our guests start first. So my name's Matthew Nichols. I'm one of the second year clinical biochemistry fellows uh, pursuing my training at the University of Toronto with Dr. Lung and Dr. Higgins, or where they Great. previously trained. So I can go next. So I'm Victoria Higgins and very similar to Matt, I'm the other second year fellow currently at the University of Toronto. And my name is Felix Lynn. Uh, I also previously trained at the Toronto program and currently I'm a clinical biochemist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. Um, so I think we read, we won't go into too much detail because that's the whole point of this episode or else we're going to give away all our material in the beginning. Um, so I think maybe let's start with, you know, something general, which is, you know, how did all of us find our ways to this profession? Um, again, how about, uh, Matt, I'll let you start first since you are the guest here. Uh, so I actually found out about this as a training program about a year or two into my PhD studies. Uh, I actually didn't know that this profession really existed until I started performing uh, laboratory studies at a hospital directly across the street from the university I was studying at. So I did my PhD studying at Dalhousie University. Uh, and then I started to uh, perform some analysis at the hospital across the street. And it's when I noticed uh, a variety of, of positions that instead of having MD after the name, they had PhD after the name. Uh, and they were listed as clinical biochemists, uh, as well as the genetics department. And so it was kind of serendipitous that I just happened to you know, walk down those hallways. And then that led me to start to look into uh, some of the laboratory medicine programs. Uh, from there, I volunteered in the lab to kind of get a, a sense of what it was. Uh, and basically from there on out, I started to tailor my training and, and experience to maximize my shots at getting in the program. Uh, it took me two chances. So my first chance or first try, I was unsuccessful. So I had to go back to the drawing board and see what I could do to uh, improve upon my application. And uh, fortunately, I was successful the second time around. And we are very glad that you're a successful man. Um, <laughs> speaking from when I trained you and Victoria at Sinai. Um, Vicki, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I did my undergraduate degree um, at the University of Waterloo in biomedical sciences. Um, and I really find like throughout that degree, there wasn't much exposure to the different career paths you could really go down after getting a science undergrad degree. And a lot of the focus is really on medical school. So I did try applying in my third year of undergraduate studies um, and was not successful. And then in my fourth year of undergrad, I started working in a lab um, that had some clinical applications. And I think that really opened my eyes into the fact that I could kind of be still in a clinical profession, but stay more in the lab and um, kind of assist clinical practice without actually having like the whole patient interaction. And there was really other professions available. So once I got into uh, the research, I started looking into fields of like masters and PhD, and I ended up doing my PhD in the University of Toronto. And my supervisor was a clinical chemist, and that was really how I was really introduced into this field. So throughout my PhD studies, I really kind of tailored 
the conferences I went to, the research I did, um, really towards trying to get into this program. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of us have uh, sort of similar experiences, but we certainly come from really unique roots um, mm -hmm. where, you know, we, we get some exposure in PhD and it's almost like it's an epiphany or like, wow, I never knew I could actually do something with my PhD outside <laughs> of research. Now. But I mean, I, I think that's blown up a lot uh, more recently because we are getting, you know, more people pursuing mm -hmm. higher education, which is great, but you know, we do have to have more opportunities or actually more exposure so that people are aware of all the different routes that they open up, you know, when you pursue higher education, mm -hmm. whether it's like a master's or PhD or like a post diploma, post um, bachelor's diploma. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, again, I, I would say uh, I did my undergrad at Queens, um, didn't really know what I was going to do. I just knew that I liked science and math. I, I actually almost uh, switched to a math major, uh, but then I, I thought about, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with math. Um, in hindsight though, I think there actually is a lot you can do, but you know, being an ignorant undergrad student, you don't really know better. Um, I actually, in my fourth year undergrad, uh, that's when I got interested in research because I, I did a very interesting um, fourth year thesis project, or at least it stimulated, um, you know, my senses in a way that it hasn't been stimulated before. Um, when I think back, I actually realized that I was working with a clinical geneticist, again, PhD, um, taking care of the clinical genetics lab. Uh, who also had faculty appointment. I didn't realize it at that time. And I think had I maybe spoken to her more about what her actual um, job at the hospital was, uh, I may have had much earlier exposure. And I only realized it when looking back because I'm like, oh, now I understand what those letters after her name were other than the PhD. <laughs> um, and she was a fantastic mentor too. Uh, but anyway, I came back to Toronto to do my PhD. Um, in uh, laboratory medicine at the department uh, in UFT, where our fellowship is also housed. Uh, and again, fortunately, my two co-supervisors are both uh, clinical uh, biochemists um, at an academic hospital. Um, but even then, as I was applying to my PhD, I had no idea what their jobs was. I think all I knew was that they're both faculty at U of T, and so they'll take care of me while I'm trying to do some sort of research and publish. Um, and I think it's as I pursued my PhD that I started asking them, you know, what's your actual job at the hospital outside of the university? Uh, and then, you know, the story of you start to realize, oh, you know, there is like another path for, um, you know, PhD research folks to get into some sort of setting where they can apply their critical thinking skills uh, but to like clinical care essentially right mm -hmm. and I did find that very intriguing uh, I'm trying to think back I'm like I don't know if I was trying to tailor everything to get into the program mm -hmm. or if I was just trying to do my PhD as best as I could and hope that that was enough for the program. Looking back, I actually, I don't know anymore. I feel like that was probably more the case. Were you um, always hoping to get into the program? I was always hoping, mm -hmm. I, I think, and it's part of my personality too, is like when I get 
uh, sort of locked in on an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of fixate on that route. I don't know if I was necessarily trying to gear myself up to, you know, tailor myself to this program. Uh, I think I was just trying to like do a good PhD as well as I could in the time that I was given. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there was a little bit of both. Um, I was very lucky that I got in in my first attempt. I do specifically remember me not really having a backup plan, but that's because I still had a year of funding. So I was like, you know, if I don't get in this year, then I'll, I'll wrap up my PhD, hopefully get a few more publications, mm -hmm. and then I'll, I'll reassess again. So I was very lucky. Mm -hmm. um, I will say though, Matt, I think it's becoming more and more common where people do need several attempts. And that's just because the pool is getting so competitive. If I apply now, I don't think I would have any chance, to be honest. The candidates are just getting stronger and stronger. And I think it's because, you know, people are starting to realize, you know, oh, there's all these other routes after my PhD, but it becomes more competitive, right? The more people know about it, the more supply there is, then, you know, the higher demand there's going to be, right? And then, you know, the more limited supply that we can take, right? Because we only have so many spots in our program. Mm -hmm. I think Matt should even tell us a bit about his his first interview experience, I feel like was quite stressful and I think played into potentially why he didn't get it. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know about this story, Matt. Yeah, so my my first time, uh, so I got a, a letter from the university, an email from the University of Toronto saying that there was an interview in one week. And so I got that letter at the airport on my way to Arizona. And so after now being in Arizona for a couple of days, trying to figure out how I was going to get back, I purchased a plane ticket to come back. Because I had purchased late, uh, the plane was overbooked. And so I got bumped. So after I got bumped, I was like, well, my two choices are basically wait at the airport and hopefully someone comes off or I go back to the hotel and do it by uh, Zoom or by, you know, whatever program they happen to be using at the time. So I put my suit on. I'm now at my hotel. And 30 minutes before the interview, the maintenance crew cut the cable for the internet. So now I'm really struggling about what am I going to do? I'm super flustered. I've got everybody that I'm on vacation with. I've got everybody's phone seeing who has the best hotspot to try to perform the, the interview. So I think by the time I got into that interview, I'm sweating. I'm now trying to do the interview off of a cell phone camera. Uh, it, yeah, it didn't really have the best base for, for, a, for like a, a best foot forward. So uh, I was happy that I still made the interview because I do think that it helped prepare me for, for the second time around. Um, but uh it's uh, it, it, it's stressful no matter what, but I, I don't think that helped. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I mean, your story, it's awful. You know, it's <laughs> such unfortunate timing. Um, it reminds me of a story um, from a, a friend who is a, um, an MD. Um, she was mentioning that during the residency interviews, she had a colleague who got stuck on the subway on his way to his residency interview um, here at here in Toronto and he eventually decided that he needed to just traipse through the subway tunnel on foot 
because there was no way he was going to make it based on, you know, the average level of service that you expect from the TTC. Um, and I, I think at first people tried to stop him and he's like, unless you guarantee that this subway is going to resume in 10 minutes, then get out of my way because I need to make it to this interview. Um, and I think he was a little disheveled too, because he sort of got, you know, dirty and scratched up from traipsing through the tunnels on foot to the next station. Um, but he got in, I, I heard it was successful. Uh, I mean, no real, no real relevance other than timing can really suck sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think my story would be believable had I not got in the second time around. But uh, <laughs> thinking about it now, I can certainly have a good laugh now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, on that topic, I, I think it's really funny when you when you look back and you think about the things that were so acutely stressful, but in hindsight, you start to realize like, you know, had I, had I sort of lived through, you know, maybe the next year or the next few months and encountered the things that were actually stressful, you know, I feel like it always puts a perspective on like, I didn't really need to stress about that, right? Or like, I certainly could have tackled that in a different way that may have, you know, yielded a better outcome. Uh, but the hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Yeah, sometimes you're your own worst enemy, making things appear harder than uh, than they need to be. For sure. But I mean, you know, there is value that you have to go through it to learn your lesson, right? Because if you don't go through it, then you just, you don't learn, right? You don't learn how to cope with it better the next time something similar comes up again. Um, Vicky, was, was your interview uh, stressful? Um. I would say, like, obviously, I was very stressed out because I felt like I've been leading up to this moment for probably five years. It's all I was thinking about. And I feel like a lot of people will say, like, oh, like, a lot of people, like, may have known me in the program because I was around for so long. But I just felt so much added pressure that if I didn't get in, it would have just been embarrassing for so many people that had known me. So I think that kind of put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, but I think what helped me was that it was in a very familiar location. Like it was at the hospital in a meeting room that I had gone in almost every day for five years. So I just felt like very comfortable with the people and the location I was in. So I think with that, it went off okay. I think I just put a lot of much unnecessary pressure on myself for it. <laughs> Which to be honest, I think that is a common characteristic um, of the people that come through this program and this profession. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know what it is, uh, but I, you know, I, I think it's just a trait that seems to be attracted, which is people who put a lot of pressure on themselves. And certainly sometimes it's beneficial, but then, you know, again, when you think about high school, you're like, did I really have to put like that much pressure on myself? Like was, was that amount of stress needed? Yeah. Um, uh, I will say for my interview, I honestly, I don't remember too much about it anymore. I don't think it was particularly bad, mm -hmm. but I do remember thinking, I'm like, oh my God, this is the first time I'm wearing a suit. I look like an idiot. I never dress like this. You know, I don't even know how I'm supposed to convey my genuine self in like the one hour that I'm given to people who honestly don't even know me, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, I just, I, I think that's when the, um, the gears for imposter syndrome started kicking in. 
Um, and I think that's certainly something we're going to talk about today. Uh, but certainly I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never like prepped for an interview like this before. I don't even know if what I prepared was good. Uh, like I, I look stupid in my suit. I don't want to wear this. Um, it was just sort of a lot of those thoughts. And then it came and then it went, right? And I was like, you know, whatever, it, it's done. I did my best. So we just have to see what the result is at this point. And I find as soon as you leave the interview, all that's going on in your head is like, you're replaying every question and you're saying like, why didn't yeah. I say this? Why didn't I say this? Until you yeah. hear the answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and for sure, leading up, same thing as you. I'm like, oh my God, this is like the pinnacle of my life right now. <laughs> Everything has just, you know, boiled down to this one hour. This is going to yeah. determine my life course. It's going to be a disaster if it doesn't work out um, no, for sure and, and obviously that happened to me for many other things right in the next years leading up for different things mm-hmm. uh, that sort of continual replaying of oh my god my whole life has amounted to this you know this is what's going to define me yeah um, would you know that it really doesn't right? the <laughs> rational part of you especially after the thing is over you're like no this is not really the only thing that's going to define me yeah And I think talking about like all the pressure we put on ourselves, I think something good to talk about is really how we balance like all those different pressures in our lives to help us kind of succeed and even prioritize all the different aspects of our lives. So I don't know if any Mm -hmm. of you guys want to talk about kind of the different priorities you have to balance and maybe even tips for our listeners or just different things that you do to help you really balance all the different um, things in your lives. I think let's let's let Matt. I feel like Matt has probably see probably balanced more than I did. I'll say. So uh, I think probably the single most challenging thing in the fellowship uh, will be time management. Uh, I don't think the the le- the material itself is not the most difficult part. It is the volume of material that you need to understand within a relatively short period of time. Two years is, it seems like a lot, but when you look at the, you know, the depth and breadth of info that we need to learn, uh, you really need to maximize all of your time, uh, you know, to have the most output you possibly can. Mm -hmm. So for me as a fellow, I'm now 33 years old and uh, I have a two-year-old daughter and four months ago, uh, I had twin boys. So I really have to... uh, you know, use all of my time uh, as, as efficiently as possible. And I think one of the things that you need to do is you really need to try to put uh, a balance between, you know, how much work in terms of projects and research and on-call type work are you going to do, uh, but you always have to set aside the time to study uh, for yourself. Because at the end of the day, if you're not gearing up to be able to pass your exams, um, I think you can run into a lot of problems and, and one of the skills that you need to learn is, is knowing how much can you bite off because you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. And sometimes uh, some faculty may or may not like that, but at the end of the day, I think they're all very understanding that, you know, you're trying to juggle a lot of things. Uh, And so uh, on my family side of things, Um, I obviously have to spend quite a bit of time with them too, but what it does do is it brings a sense of balance to my life. So I'm not spending all of my time working. Um, Although the kids are a handful, it kind of distracts me from clinical biochemistry. So, you know, I can live a rich life in terms of 
my love of science, but I can also live a rich life in terms of, uh, you know, time with family. Uh, before COVID, also friends, but uh, now that that's kind of disappeared. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it's learning how to say no and prioritizing uh, what's most important to you and knowing that you can't always please everybody. And I think, I think that's really the strategy I've taken so far. And so it's, it's really been set up for me as basically a strict schedule. I'm more or less pencil in from about 6.30 until 4 p.m. as my working hours every day at a bare minimum. And then if I run into more free time or I'm on call or there's pinch projects, I can always make more time, um, but I try to stick to a pretty strict schedule. Mm -hmm. um, tangential point, because you mentioned COVID, Matt, mm -hmm. you know, had your uh, interview, you know, debacle, the first round happened now in COVID, it would have been no problem because you wouldn't have ever needed to buy an emergency ticket to come in person because nobody would consider that anymore. So and it's funny. And uh, like, I don't know, Matt, do you even remember the particular platform you use to um, like video or telephone conference in? I believe it was time? Skype. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right? I think that's but what now, they, were, they were using at the time. I don't think Zoom was quite as big then. I think right nowadays, started. Zoom is like part of everybody's standard vocabulary. Yeah, I made it a lot easier. Like I think we'll talk about jobs later on, but even with COVID, yeah. having job interviews now yeah. through Zoom made it so much easier <laughs> instead of travel yeah. across the country. Yeah. Sorry, that was tangential. <laughs> but um, like back to about balance. Um, Vicky, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you have tried to achieve balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so unlike Matt, I do not have um, any children. So I'm 28. And I one thing that was really hard at the beginning to balance is I got married pretty early on in the fellowship. So the first five or six months of the fellowship was a lot of kind of planning my wedding. And I had that thinking, thinking about that as well. Um, so yeah, you always need to make sure that you don't put every minute of your life into your job or your studies, because once you're done that fellowship, you need to have your friends and your family and potentially your spouse and children still there and, and still supportive of you. So you can't really be pushing everyone away from that. Um, and on top of that, you need to take other time for yourself in terms of like exercise and just physical and mental health as well. Um, I find I'm just a huge, huge planner. Um, so that just really helps me. Like I can even plan out like the main things I need to do for almost a few months to come. And then I really kind of pencil in everything around there. So like Matt said, it really comes down to time management. And I think that's kind of the critical skill <laughs> to be able to handle school. So like late in your life, because <laughs> it can be quite demanding, um, but you really need to know that it's not the only thing in your life and other priorities, um, you really need to focus on your other priorities as well. Yeah, I mean, so first off, congrats on your twins, Matt. You know, that is such Thank a handful. You. Um, you know, it's balance, I feel like is always everyone's um, enemy because it, it's so hard to achieve. And it's also very fluid, right? Because the balance that I am seeking right now is very different from the balance that I needed when I was in my PhD or when I was in the first part of my fellowship or the last part of my fellowship. 
comes. I, I think that's the hard part, right? It's that it's very fluid. And like, as you both said, your personal lives will continue to grow and evolve and change parallel to your professional life. And so balance, I feel like it's always something that you will constantly be chasing. You will probably never catch up to because your life is, is it, the demands just always change, right? But you know, you certainly try your best, right? To like squeeze in new things or remove different things. Um, I'll say for myself, um, so I, I'm 31 right now. Um, in the beginning of my fellowship, um, I was I was single. I was alone. So the balance that I had trouble then, I think it was just figuring myself out. You know, I could easily be my my own best advocate or my own worst enemy because it was all just up to how I allotted my time. Right? I didn't have anyone to answer to, but how I see that now is that I didn't have anyone to sort of rest on or be a solace for or, you know, help me sort of ground myself back down from all the work. And so that's what I actually found very hard, right? It was the, the, the balance that I had to determine and I defined for myself and I was only accountable to myself, right? Um, and that's still a challenge that I have now. Um, so I, I actually met my partner in the middle of my fellowship and, you know, you could see different ways, right? You know, starting a relationship, you know, you've actually taken away time from yourself to say, focus on all the things that the fellowship throws at you, which is, you know, in abundance and in infinite and never ending. Um, but you could also see it as, you know, you have somebody else now to also be your advocate to help you through these things and maybe sometimes to just give you a little bit of a break from all your work or professional responsibilities so that you can sort of readjust yourself or recalibrate, which, you know, like you both said, we all need, right? And we find it in very different forms. Um, so it, it's, it's just funny reflecting on that, right? And I will say that I feel like as we grow older and we mature into both our personal and professional lives, uh, everyone's time management gets better because you learn to take on more things, but you also learn how to start trimming things that you don't need to hold on to and how to prioritize things that, you know, require your more urgent attention versus things that are less urgent. And um, you're constantly seeking that, right? It's just, it's changing, but the concept is always there. And as you get older, you just get better at it. And so I, I feel like now I handle so much more work than I handled when I was in my PhD or in the beginning of my fellowship, but I still feel like it's not enough, right? Because there's always more to do and there's always more balance to figure out. Mm -hmm. And I think one way to even help achieve that balance is something that I still struggle with, but is to try to really separate your work and your studies from your personal life. Like sometimes you want to come back and be like, oh, I learned this today, or I did this today, and this was fun. And it's good to talk about your job a bit, but I think it's really important to talk about a lot of other things that aren't related to what you're doing at work. And I think that really lets you kind of have other hobbies and really achieve that balance and making sure that you're talking about other things that are important to like who you're living with and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, related to what Matt said is that sometimes you really have to be good in terms of recognizing how much you can bite off, right. Or how much yeah. you can handle. Um, and that isn't always easy. And I think all of us know that, especially when you are a fellow just starting, you know, you're feeling that you're starting at the bottom rung of the ladder and you have to say yes to everything. But at the end of the day, you know, you are the only person who can advocate for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And you 
should always know what your capacity and what your limit is and when you've reached it. Because the flip side is if you burn out or your mental health or your, even your physical well-being is compromised, you can't perform, right? You won't be able to do anything if you are not in a good state of mind, whether it is mentally, emotionally, or physically. And I think learning how to be your own best advocate is another thing that I realize is a very challenging thing. And if you consciously think about it, it's not easy to do, right? Because <laughs> you, you really have to actively think about yourself and reflect on yourself and then think about, you know, how do you fit in with everything else in your life, right? Whether it be personal or professional. So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Lab Report. So please let us know what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes. And you can email us any questions you have at epoc or epocc at cscc.ca. See you in the next episode.